Welcome to the Page Two Podcast. Before we jump in, I want to make a real quick announcement. Eric Torrance, who is usually the co-host of this podcast, is not here. Um, he is at home getting some much-needed time with his family as he and his wife Amy are celebrating the birth of their new baby girl, Nora. And so, Eric, if you are listening, we are so excited for you guys. Um, and as much as Eric uh, loves being home right now with his family, I think that he would also love to be here as well uh, because I think we're in for a really good, a really good conversation. You know, um, I think it is impossible to understand America, understand the American story, understand our past, understand uh, what America is all about without talking about race. And so um, in the next hour or so, um, we're going to have a a fascinating conversation about race and particularly race within the American church, uh, where we are, uh, maybe how uh, we can navigate some ways forward. So I hope you stick with us. Welcome to the page two podcast. I know for some who listened to that introduction that I just made and heard that the topic is about race um, might already be feeling a little bit uncomfortable um, or might be feeling a little bit defensive about this conversation. And so, but I'm just going to encourage anybody listening right now to just uh, stick with me because I'm not sure there's a more important conversation. conversation that we could be having right now as Americans, or especially as American Christians, or even more especially as white American Christians, um, than the conversation of race. You know, I, I grew up uh, solidly middle class in the suburbs of Denver, Colorado, and I never had to worry about physical safety and walking in my neighborhood. I've never in my life felt like I was being followed in a store um, uh, by a security guard or, or something like that. Um, I've never, um, and I, I knew all growing up and, and through most of my adult life, I've known that I've had it kind of better than a lot of people um, in my city or in my country. Um, and I've honestly not felt animosity towards people of a different skin color. And I, and I haven't known many, if any, that honestly have felt animosity, you know, uh, I've, I've sort of sensed that that type of behavior that's for, um, white supremacists and skinheads and and stuff like that. Uh, But I had no idea for most of my life of the, the systems, the narratives, the generational structures that sort of conspire against, um, and continue to, to conspire against, Uh, entire populations of America. I was, I have just for most of my life, just been sort of doing my own thing, just kind of working hard, um, going to school. When I was young, I played sports. I had teammates and friends who were black that I got quite close to. Um, and I felt like, um, I felt like I was colorblind and I felt like that was a good thing. Um, but now I sort of recognize and beginning to more and more over the last five years or so, or maybe more than that, five to 10 years, um, recognize that, beginning to recognize that colorblindness in some respects is the very atmosphere that allows uh, systemic injustice um, to survive and to thrive. And even though it's well-intended, I think that blindness can be dangerous. And so this, um, this podcast this conversation uh, I'm about to um, jump into um, is not for the end goal of blindness, um, but is to rather to embrace um, seeing uh, and feeling and learning to love. Um, and so I have the 
privilege to uh, welcome to the Page Two podcast a, a recent friend of mine, uh, Alan Parr, who um, is has a has an impressive resume. You know, he is a graduate of Dallas Seminary. He's a father. He's a husband. Um, he's an excellent communicator. I'll talk about that here in just a minute. He is uh, a former teacher. He's an entrepreneur, a business owner. And um, Alan and I met each other. We were both speaking at, a, at the same event uh, recently. I had known his name, uh, known a little bit about Alan, but didn't know him personally. We got to know each other a little bit at, at this event. And um, was very impressed at, at him as a communicator, but then just also just as a as a genuine person that would be that would be fun to hang out with. And so Alan and I have enjoyed a couple conversations since. And really, this is this um, this podcast is me just turning the microphones on and jumping into a conversation that's already going on between me and Alan. So, Alan, welcome to the Page Two Podcast. Oh, man. thanks so much, Greg. I'm really looking forward to this, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah. You know, as I, you know, it's, it's hard to know, you know, you and I have had a couple conversations about race and church and America, like all of this, and it's hard to even know where to start right now, you know, but I would love just to maybe get the ball rolling. You know, I, I mentioned a little bit of your resume and you are highly educated, you're successful, you're a business owner, like you're, you're even with all of that, tell me like, what is your, or what has been your experience, um, being black in America? Yeah, so uh, loaded question. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> start off with a nice, easy one. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I think I'd like to start off, um, you know, kind of letting people know kind of how my upbringing was. I grew up in primarily a suburban area, um, you know, middle-class type of mm-hmm. environment, um, educated, was actually on my golf team in high school. I was yeah. the only black on my golf team. And that yeah. leads me into kind of the first time in my life where I started to really realize that I was black and I was experiencing some level of mistreatment as a result of my race. I can remember whenever I was in um, uh, sophomore, I was a sophomore in high school and I uh, was on the golf team and I had just finished practice and I wasn't um, driving at the time. And so I was just sitting on the side of the road in a predominantly affluent white area where the golf course was, where we were practicing. And I had my golf hat on my golf attire on, I had my golf club sitting on the side of the road and I was waiting for (laughs) a lot of context clues. A lot of context (laughs) clues that I'm like, you know, I'm not the typical hood guy that maybe people are, you know, see on the TV and movies Mm -hmm. and things like that. And so, um, you know, you would assume that a black guy dressed in golf gear would be still seen as a good, safe person. Right. And so I was waiting for my mom to pick me up. And uh, uh, and so a couple of police officers came by and they started asking me questions. And they said, well, basically, you fit the description of a young black male who has just raped someone in this area wow. and committed a theft. And so therefore, we're going to take you to the station without going into all the details. Um, it was at that moment I was really confused. I was right around the Rodney King, you know, yeah. beatings and all those sort of things. So as they stuffed me in the police car, my mom pulls up and she uh, just livid. She's just shocked. She just expects, you know, to pick her son up from golf practice and right. she sees me there. And and so essentially, to make a long story short, um, she takes me out of the police car. <laughs> you are not taking, you are not <laughs> taking my son to be questioned yeah. down to the station. Wow. and. And so it was at that moment where, you know, my mom was devastated. I was as well. And, and this had been other experiences like that yeah. as well. Um, I can think of one more, um, a little bit more recent as a teacher here in the uh, public schools and mostly a white um, mm-hmm. suburb of Dallas. Uh, you know, I was teaching calculus, the highest level of math in our yeah. school at one teacher of the year and all these different things. Right. And in most conversations that I had with people, whenever they asked me, what do you do for a living? This is typically how it would go. What do you do for a living? And I'd say, oh, I teach math at this particular school. And they say, oh, okay, that's great. Uh, What math? Oh, I teach calculus. And then they would say, oh, really? And the next question, oftentimes by a lot of white people that I would talk to would be, what sport do you coach? Oh, wow. And once again, not meaning anything. I'm sure it wasn't any sort of, you know, purposeful thing. But the impression or the implication was maybe you got the position at the school because of how you could help the athletic system grow 
and not just because you're a good teacher. And so it was just very interesting that I never heard that question from, from blacks, right. but typically from whites. So, yeah. Yeah. So what, um, just in those couple of stories, you know, th- those are, those are very, I don't have stories like that. What does that, um, what does that do to your everyday thinking as you're going through the world, uh, as you are applying for jobs or as, you know, like that type of thing? What do those types of stories, what type of narrative does that create in your mind or does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think it just reminds you that um, as much as we would like to move beyond this and say that it's not a problem and that racism doesn't exist or people aren't biased or prejudiced or whatnot or Christians don't deal with this, right? Because I'm sure most of the people that ask me that question or treat, you know, me in a certain way, I'm sure they're Christians. And a lot of times they don't mean anything right. by it, but it just reminds me that there is still a problem that we still need to talk about, we still need to address, and it's not something we can just, yeah. you know, brush under the rug. Yeah. You know, I can say that for me, and, and actually for the the majority, the vast majority of the, the white people that I know, particularly um, here at church, at, at Chase Oaks, um, we recognize uh, that there's a problem, especially like sometimes we don't recognize it daily. That's another conversation. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that um, here um, in just a minute. But and it's usually when something happens culturally, it's like, oh, man, I thought we were beyond this. I mm-hmm. thought we were better than mm-hmm. this or, or whatever. Like something will happen culturally and it rears its sort of ugly head. And we can recognize that there's there's a problem and that oftentimes even in the church, you know, there's a problem. But we don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, we like I mentioned just a minute ago, there's not animosity in sure. our heart at least not that we can detect, you know? Um, and beyond that, we're not sure what to do. Like, is it, is it enough to not harbor ill feelings? Is it, is it enough to, or like what, when you hear me saying that, like, what do you hear and how do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah. So I think the thing that we all have to wrestle with is, um, is it enough for me as a Christian to have the mentality that I'm not uh, mean or don't express hostility or animosity towards another race? Or might God be challenging us to go a little bit deeper and really be honest with ourselves and say, is there something still in me that very well may struggle with racism or supremacy or these types of things? And so one of the examples that I often use that I think might help us all process this a little bit better is, uh, you know, we may be on, we may be comfortable with people of another race working for us, cleaning our homes, doing our lawn, doing different things mm-hmm. like that. Our kids hanging out together, playing music on the same team. But I think the question we want to ask would be, you know, if I'm a white person mm-hmm. and I have a beautiful daughter how would I feel if my daughter brought home and was interested in potentially marrying someone of another race, someone of color? Yeah. And so, you know, the question is, would there be something in me that would say I'm uncomfortable with that simply because I know that that's going to make my daughter's life a little harder yeah. because of mixed marriages and the perception in our country? Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Fair enough, yeah. because we know that that is going to be harder. Right. But if there's something in me that says, I don't want her to marry this person because of the color of their skin. Instead of looking at this person as a good provider, he's going to take care right. of her. He's going to treat her good. He loves Jesus. All of these things. I think it's that point where we realize, wait, maybe there is something deep, deep, deep down within me that still feels a little certain way about people of color. Yeah. And I think we need to wrestle with that. You know, as I hear that, I have three beautiful daughters, and um, you know, even even if that scenario that you just said, even if it if I sense in me even just ten percent more fear because of the person that she has brought home, um, in my mind, I, it also makes me ask the question: What is it? What would it be like to be the person that everyone has ten percent more fear? because of the color of your skin. You know what I mean? Right. And like having, having to work that much harder 
mm-hmm. to put people at ease yeah. or having to prove yourself that much more, right. you know, because you're sort of starting off at a deficit that because of the color of your skin, people are just going to be naturally more fearful yeah. or people are going to be naturally more distrustful or whatever. Um, what does it mean to like live with that mm-hmm. every day and every job interview and every conversation, knowing that you have to sort of overcome that? Right. Did I describe that well as far as that that experience or? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of there's this term within the African-American context that we call double consciousness. OK. And, you know, it's it's something that when I talk to a lot of my white friends, they don't really know anything about, which is. Once again, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but that doesn't make them a bad person. That's nothing that they should feel guilty about because none of us can help how we were born, what family we were born into, whether it was rich, poor, white, black. So there's no guilt here, but it is something that many people of color experience. And it's this idea that in order to be fully accepted, in order to be able to get ahead, in order to be promoted and get certain opportunities, I almost have to conform to whiteness, if you right. will, because people in positions of power and people in, who are in a position of bringing us to a higher level or promoting us um, may not do that if they sense that we don't represent the organization well, or if there's right. a certain level of slang, or if my name is more ethnic uh, than maybe our white counterparts mm-hmm. or something like that. So we typically go through life knowing that we we need to, in some way, shape, or form, kind of conform to the right. white is right, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The way we talk, the way our hair is, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we dress, all of that, our language that we use. Um, but then we also want to fit in with our black counterparts right. as well, uh, or excuse me, our, our black colleagues as yeah. well. And so there's this double consciousness that we feel. And it's yeah. like you said, it's the pressure of man, I can't slip up at all. Like if I split a verb or if I, you know, yeah. say, hey, man, what you talking about, man? Right. What are you, what you, what you talking yeah, about, yeah. Greg? Like, <laughs> you know, like I, I, can I get away with that and right. be safe and know that, oh, okay, we still may promote him. We still may let him speak because yeah. he's a good guy. You yeah. Know? And to think then that because, um, because of our history and because of just the majority culture, because we're majority white, um, at least we are now uh, in America and have been, um, we won't be in the future. And so that's another, I mean, it's, um, but the, the, that because um, white is the majority, that it has had the ability to create, to, to define what normalcy is. And normalcy is us, as white people, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, to think to think that there are huge populations of our of our culture that have to think about this all the time, um, that have to think about the, the context that they're in, that have to think about the color of the people's skin who are in the room so that I can fit in, you know, like that mm-hmm. type of thing, which is something that I just don't have to think about. Right. Um, I don't, I can put my energy towards other things. Right. I can put my energy towards you know, um, my career, I can put my energy towards like all kinds of things. I don't have to put my energy towards that. Right. You know? Um, and for someone like you and this in describing that you, you not only sort of have to overcome sometimes, but you, but you also have to apply your energy to all kinds of things just to sort of navigate in a white world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of brings up the whole topic that we've we've kind of alluded to already uh, of white privilege, mm-hmm. and when I mention those two words together, um, there is within trouble. it's trouble a little <laughs> bit but within the white community. There's all kinds of reactions around that. Sure, um, and I think that that I think that primarily even among folks that um, well intended want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Um, it sounds insulting. Yeah. It sounds um, like it is discounting the hard work sure. that went in to build my career, to mm-hmm. do, to make right decisions, to make hard decisions, to do, like all that kind of stuff, to then have someone say, well, what you have is you have because of privilege, right. that you were given those things. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's insulting. And so there's an automatic kind of bowing up against that. Um, but that when, when I've talked with you enough, like when you use that term, that's not necessarily what you're talking about. Right. So when you hear that term, um, what, what is, what is white privilege and what isn't it? 
Right. So, you know, I think this this term white privilege, uh, you know, it, it's the idea of, OK, man, you know, what does this mean? Right. So um, let's first talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if you're white, you had an easy life. Uh, it's funny that I posted something on Facebook about a recent talk that I did on this subject. And I got this one guy that just responded back and he went through this whole story about how he had to work so hard to get his promotion as a machinist and how nothing was good. And he totally missed the concept. Like nobody is saying that you didn't have a a hard life. Nobody's saying that it wasn't, uh, that you didn't work for it, uh, that everything was handed to you. Here's the best way, as I've thought about this, here's the best way that I could really explain it. Um, You know, let's say uh, that um, we would probably agree that there is American privilege, right? right? I mean, it's a privilege to be able to have running water and turn on the water and be able to drink it. It's a privilege to be able to send our kids to free school and get a public education, right? It's a privilege to be able to to take out a loan and live in a home and not have to save up a whole bunch of money before you build a house. Right. In other countries, they have to do all that. They don't have these privileges. Now, does that make us a bad bad people? No. Does that mean we have to go through life feeling guilty? Does it mean our life is easy? No, it just means that... And we also have to work hard. We have yeah, to work very yeah, hard yeah. to get all those right, things, right? right? So it just means we have to study hard. Yeah. It just means that we, um, you know, it's, it is a privilege in this world to be in America because we have privileges that other people don't have. Now, in terms of what it actually might be, mm-hmm. the best way I could describe it would be, first question I normally ask people is, would you agree that at some point in our uh, country there was racism? Most people, everybody, unless you're, you know, weren't here and ignorant, you'd say yes. And then I would ask the question, so would you agree that there is some element of racism still present in our country today? Most people would agree, yeah, maybe 10%, 5%, 2%, but it's somewhere there. And so then I say, well, I, I don't necessarily know if there's this thing of white privilege, but I'll say that because there are more whites that are in positions of power, even if you have more whites that are in a position of power and the majority of them are not racist. Let's yeah. acknowledge that. Yeah. But the fact that there could be some means that um, there are going to be decisions that are going to be made to oppress certain people by people who are racist, who are in positions of power. And because there are by numbers more white mm-hmm. people that are in positions of power then by default, then it seems to reason that is a privilege to be white in this country because you're going to naturally experience less racism right. uh, in these type of situations. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's only just sort of honest to say, you know, that some of the themes that are fundamental to the American story are themes are really, really bad themes. You know, there's themes of genocide and slavery and racism and prejudice and injustice. And to say um, otherwise is just to whitewash history. I yeah. mean, there's other themes that are really noble and great, but mm-hmm. those those themes are there. And um, I think that a lot of the, the white people that I would know um, would say that they recognize that that is a really gross part of our past. But can't we just move on? Mm-hmm. You know, why do we keep need to, sorting to bring this up? And I think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but I think... Um, what you're describing is something that's like that those themes are part of the foundation of our country. They're, they're sort of woven into our fabric. They're kind of baked in mm-hmm. and, um, and you, and it's part, and I've heard you give the illustration before of the fish, you know, like how's the water voyage? It's like what's water, you know? Right. And it's like, you don't, um, that we don't know. That when when we get to we get to define normalcy, when we get to when we get in positions of power, when we can um, promote those who look like us, who act like us, who talk like us, when we get to determine what beauty is, when we get to determine um, like all of that, um, and then we say, but we don't see color. It's just like, well, that's just really weird, yeah. you know. Um, so. I'd love to hear. So, so the first question that I just sort of relate, I want you to um, respond to two things. One that I just mentioned, why can't we just 
move on? Mm-hmm. Like, why do we need to keep talking about this? Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give the second question after you talk about that. So Yeah, sure. So, you know, I liken it to the fact that if you're married and uh, you have a problem in year one of your marriage and then that problem is not resolved in year five, then it's going to normally merit another conversation or two or three. Right. And if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. Certain things that, you know, just don't get resolved. So if something is not fully, completely and totally resolved, I think the conversation needs to be there. And, uh, you know, when we really think about racism in our country, we're really only one generation removed from the uh, the civil rights movement yeah. and all of those things. And so um, we're still relatively recent. Yeah, it's been 50 years or, or whatever, but it's still relatively recent, which means a lot of those mindsets yeah. that that people had back in the day are either those people are still alive or they've passed them down to their children or their children's children. And so I say all that to say that, you know, there is still a major problem in our country. Um, You know, uh, racism right now is expressed in a much different way than it was in our country in the forties, fifties and Mm -hmm. sixties there. It was outright. It was blatant. It was in your face. It was beating you with clubs. It was, you know, all of these things, segregated bathrooms and all this stuff. Right. But now it's a much more systemic issue. There's, there's, there's systems that are underneath the fabric of our culture that are making it a little bit more difficult for some people of color to get ahead. than It's a bit more subtle. It's much more subtle. Right. I mean, for instance, you know, little things like, uh, you know, Kids that are in elementary school uh, getting suspended four times at the rate of white kids for the exact same misdemeanors. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, things like, you know, um, the disproportionate number of people that are in jail for nonviolent crimes that are in jail for life without parole. Like that means there's no chance of them like. They're there, and and the majority of these people are people of color. And so yeah. there's a systemic issue which is still there, and I think that's why we need to continue to have these conversations. Right. Okay, so my second question, and this is going to be a, a, a little bit of a dicey one, but like, well, like might as well. It's like this whole conversation is dicey. <laughs> um, what do you hear when you hear white people say, I don't see color? You know, or yeah. like, or this how or sense that the, the goal is just to be colorblind, you right. know, and I, I just don't see color. I don't know why we have to talk about that. I don't see color. Right. You know, <laughs> um, how do you hear that? Right. So typically, I mean, I can't speak for, for everyone, but I, I think whenever I hear that, I typically hear uh, someone who is trying their best to communicate or to convince me or someone else that they are not racist. Yeah. Right. And and as I'll talk about maybe a little bit later, that's kind of one of the worst things that you want to do when you're having a conversation with someone of color is to try to be on the defensive and try to do and say everything possible to prove that you're not racist. And, you know, I don't see color as one of those statements or I have black friends or I have, you know, all these different things that we typically say to try to absolve ourselves, to make ourselves feel better, right? Yeah. And to convince well, ourselves. They might, well, they might yeah. actually feel like they don't see color. Right. You know, and, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so the question is like, I, I've never really understood that statement because unless you're blind, right. we naturally, with our physical human eyes, we are going to see color. Now, it may not be the very first thing that we see. I may look at you and say, I see his hair. I see he's tall. Mm-hmm. I see that he is athletic. Okay, yes. But I would be remiss to say I don't see that you're a white male, right? Right. So it may not be the first thing that we see, but you know, when we when we say I don't see color, I think that that's uh, you know causing us not to really see and embrace that full person. Because for me, as a as an African American man, yes, I'm a man, but me being African American, some of my experiences is what shaped who I am today. So I don't want people to not see color. I want yeah. people to to treat me uh, in a respectful way in spite of my color. Yeah. I think, and you can speak into this or comment, I I think that sometimes what happens um, when folks say that is that within their contexts of of church or work or or whatever, um, 
it's possible that those that the people who are of color that are in those contexts, they're they're doing they're living double consciousness. And so what they as a white person, what they're experiencing is a black man that acts like that's acting pretty white. Yeah. Um, And so then it's pretty easy to say, I don't see color. It's all everybody acting white and their skin tones are different. But it's possible that if you were if that same person were to, you know, spend a weekend when and all the in-laws are coming over, you know, or, or whatever over at uh, at that individual's home at the, church, at the barbecue, at the barbecue or yeah. whatever, <laughs> um, that it's possible that they would see color then because they would feel like the outsider, you know, and and that kind of thing. And so maybe it's just it's just kind of convenient for for the majority culture that's setting the rules to say, I am so privileged in the sense that I don't have to think about race. Right. Everyone else might have to think about race or whatever. I don't have to. I don't see color. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a mark of privilege a little bit, yeah. you know, that, that you're, you're part of the group that gets to set the rules. Yeah. You know, and I'm not one that will ever go through life and constantly pull the race card and say, the reason why I didn't get here is because I'm black or the reason why, you know, I feel like God has blessed me to be very, very successful and enjoy a phenomenal life. I mean, I can't really complain about anything. I've got a great wife and kids and, you know, God has blessed me in that regard. But, um, I think that it is a privilege to be able to go through life. And when bad things happen, when negative things happen, you don't necessarily have to wonder could this be because of my race, right? right? And there have been time times in my life with all the successes and accomplishments that God has blessed me with, there have been disappointments and times in my life where things haven't worked out and mm-hmm. I've had to ask the question, is it because I'm black? Now, right. will I ever get the answer to that? I don't know if I'll ever get the yeah. answer to that, but the fact that I have to think about that and other people don't is a privilege and it's, yeah. it's a different experience. You know, I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, it's just, it's really tricky, but particularly within the Christian community. So I, um, I, whether I should be reading this, this way or not, um, I tend to see, you know, that when, when God's word says that the, the sins of the fathers are visited on the, on the sons to the fourth and the fifth generation, I don't see that God is saying that that's supposed to be that way, but that's just the way that it is. Um, and I look at some of the things and the systemic, not just not just things that happened from isolated individuals, but just pervasive systemic. And it was the law, you know, like our our country was founded um, when it says, you know, we believe, you know, freedom for all people. You are not included in the people. Mm-hmm. You know, you are three fifths of a person. Right. And, you know, we had to amend the Constitution to it to admit that you are human. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, that is bad. That is bad, bad. Um, and that continued on, you know, and, and with, with slavery and then through um, Jim Crow laws and, you know, like all of that type of stuff. And you talk about like even things that happened in our country in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And, you know, um, a lot of those people are still around, like as you mentioned before, you know, that this is and it, and for us to sort of say. I just don't want to talk about this anymore. Let's just move on is sort of like, you know, you mentioned like in, in marriage or whatever. I mean, if you, if, if we completely abuse our spouse and we, you know, cheat on our spouse, like all of those things. And, and, and then we have a change of heart. We can't just say, okay, that's all over. Right. Let's just move on and never bring this up again. It's like, you know, there's, we got to work through some stuff, you know, and, and talk through some things. And, and for me, you know, I, I've heard in certain, in, you know, like what, what, what kind of got me thinking of this is when you said, wondering if, did this happen because I was black or did I not get this promotion because I was black? You know, that type of stuff. You also hear now in 2019, those stories about being a white male. Right. In certain industries, you know, that are trying to bring some corrective measures that are trying through staffing decisions or those types of things. And so it is possible that there are folks listening who are white saying, yeah, well, I'm asking that question, too. Right. You know, Um, but as a white male, I can say I think it's different. Hmm. You know what I mean? I think that there's a little bit of a difference in saying and recognizing that there's some corrective measures that are going to happen. And this is going to take a long, long time. 
yeah. to, to unravel and to like the, the, the cultural narratives that we have created don't just go away. Right. Um, and it's going to take generations of people and there may actually be for right or for wrong. There might be individual stories of people who are white that are going to be sort of on the short end of some of those corrective measures right. that for a larger cultural narrative needs to happen. Perhaps um, I'm way out on a limb on this and talking, you know, but um, I just, I don't know. It, it's really tricky, you know? Yeah. And, and let me speak on that real quick. you know, this really touches a little bit on this idea of affirmative action and, you right. know, the issue, uh, you know, organizations and churches trying to diversify and whatnot. And I don't know of any, you know, uh, people of color that want to be hired just because of the color of their skin, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's an issue because I don't want to get into an organization and people see me as being incompetent. Oh, he's only here because he's black and we needed, you know, yeah. a token black person here. But I think it's an issue of, okay, you know, what is the bigger goal here? What is the bigger picture here? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I'm a company. And I have products that I'm trying to market to the world. Well, the bigger picture here is that we don't just want our products to be sold to one race, right. you know. And so if we can diversify, if we can create an environment where, you know, we communicate a message that reaches more people, then that's more sales. That's more this and that. Churches from a different perspective as well. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, we want to reach people of different. So I think whenever we all keep that mentality in, in mind and we say, okay, you know what? Yes, I'm qualified for this as a white male. I've done my part. I've worked hard. But here's a black male or Latino Mm -hmm. male, and they're just as qualified as me. Um, Okay, what's the bigger picture of this organization? It's to reach Mm -hmm. people outside of our race. So, okay, you know what? Maybe I'll have a place in the next time or whatnot. But, yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right, let me ask you this. Is it, do you feel like, is it possible to be... Um, is it possible to be part of the problem as a, as a, let's just, within this context, I know there's a broader thing. It's not just like a white problem, you know, but, but I'm a white guy. So this is our conversation here. So is it possible for me to be part of the problem without holding any animosity towards you, towards other races? You know, like I don't feel any animosity and yet I'm still part of the problem. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, um, in some subtle ways, uh, I think that it's possible to not express animosity or outward racism towards other races, but I think it's still possible for us to communicate or to model for our children um, mm-hmm. a particular type of mindset in terms of how we treat people of yeah. another race or how close we allow them to be. Uh, to our family, right? Mm-hmm. Or to, do we let them come in our homes? Do How how far into our homes do we let them come? Or, uh, you know, those types of yeah. things where it's not like I'm mistreating this person, but it's, it's, am I really fully embracing and accepting this person or this yeah. group of people as, as I would someone who is of my same race? And then what message does that send to our children right. And then that mentality, it can be passed down. So I think there's like two ideas yeah. here. It's like, okay, I'm not being, you know, hostile, yeah. but then I have to check myself and ask, am I also fully embracing anyone and everyone as Christ would? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a good question for us to, to ask on what, what riles our sense of indignation, um, because there are certainly things that happen in culture that can make us really, really angry. But then maybe when something happens within the African-American community or something like that, we're just kind of eerily silent. Um, and I can't remember, I'll, I'll butcher the quote uh, that Dr. King said, like, what will be remembered is not like the hostility of our, of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Mm-hmm. Um, or something like that to that mm-hmm. effect, you know. Um, and I've certainly been guilty of that, you know, sure. that I, like I don't feel hostility. But then when I see something that is pretty clear, like there's a there's a population within my city, even within my church. Um, and it just and, it, and my my indignation or my voice just is, is not the same as it is there. And it's like, OK, that's it probably communicates more than I want, you know. 
Yeah, you know, and and you know, when you talk about wanting to be part of the solution and not the problem, as yeah. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about, but I think that's one of the ways that we can, right? Is is, um, you know, I know that when I talk to a lot of my um, black friends, um, you know, one of the frustrations that they will have is that whenever there's a big news, uh, something that's newsworthy going on, they'll look at their friends on Facebook and Instagram and their news feeds are just blowing up and they have comments and comments and comments and yeah. status updates and all these things. So it's very clear that they feel emotionally about certain things. It's very clear that they have opinions and that they have a Facebook things. account and that and they, they have <laughs> a Facebook account and they're active on their right, Facebook account. Right, right? right. So that's very clear. But then whenever there's some sort of maybe injustice happening in the African-American community, um, we're not talking about something that's in a third world country that we can't pronounce. Right. We're talking about like right here in our city of yeah. Dallas or right here in the, in the United States, all of a sudden, you know, there's not even a, you know, prayers for this family or condolences for the family or my heart goes out for these people who've just lost their seven-year-old son yeah. who was playing with a toy gun on a, you know, yeah. and got shot by the police. And, you know, it, it's just silence. Yeah. And, and as African-Americans, it, it seems to communicate like, wait, why doesn't your heart have something in it that says, I need to stand up for this. I need to, I need yeah. to communicate this. And it almost feels at times like, um, you know, I want to be silent so that I don't appear a certain way to my white peers, Right. Because if I stand up for, you know, injustice on behalf of a black person, then maybe am I in some way denying my own race or that sort of thing? And it just, yeah, you know, yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so I want to transition us. And, you know, I, I think that conversations like 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 this and even some of the things that you just mentioned of like being vocal when when the when the time warrants. Um, are certainly some things, some positive things that we could do. But what else would you describe just from your perspective? Like what's the path forward for yeah. us? Um, it's going to be a long path. We've already talked about that. It's nothing that we should be expecting that, you know, if we just have a, a good set of conversations for the next six months, that we'll be good. You know, like this is something that um, it's, it's a, it's a pretty big knot that's going to take a little bit to unravel. Um, but what does that look like? for us? Like what, what is, what does success look like or what's, what's a path forward? Yeah. So I think the first thing that I would really, you know, encourage people to do is to just have these open conversations and, and dialogues with people that are, um, that don't look like us. And I yeah. think that like you and I have done, you're just mm -hmm. going out to lunch and just, you know, taking the position of a listener and a learner and just yeah. saying, Hey man, I just want to know your story. I want to know what are some of the struggles that you've had. You know, uh, how can I better understand your experience? Because I think that whenever we have conversations about race, typically it gets very, very hostile quickly on both sides. And I right. am in no way absolving myself or my race yeah. from getting emotional to the point where we're not hearing each other. We're not yeah. listening. We're not learning. Um, you know, we're just trying to get our point across. We're just trying yeah. to prove ourselves. And, mm -hmm. and black people are trying to prove that we've been oppressed and right. we've been, you know, treated unfairly and you need to hear us. And then white people are trying to prove that I'm not a racist. And, and that wasn't me who did that, that to you. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. It's, you know, I can't take responsibility right. for what my great grandparents did and all this and that. Right. And all of a sudden we're not listening. We're not hearing each other. And so right. I think that, you know, having conversations um, that are healthy, that we just say, you know what, if I don't say anything, I'm good, but I just really want to learn from you and hear your conversation, you know, hear what, hear what your experience has been. Yeah. And I think another thing too, that would really help if, if I'm, you know, talking to a white person would be, um, to be informed, you're right. You mm -hmm. know, to, to really try to figure out, okay, what is really going on in our country? Yeah. Is there some problem that we're facing? Is there some problem with our judicial system? You know, is there some problem with, how certain races are treated and what are those problems and what are the statistics mm -hmm. that seem to justify that and back that up. And that way, whenever we have these conversations with people of other races, we're at least coming to the table with a sense of, okay, I, 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 I get it. I get mm -hmm. it from a perspective, not maybe from your experience, but I get it from, from what I can gather and from what I see because I've done my work and I'm, I'm being yeah. informed on it. So, yeah. And I would just say, it's been so helpful for me as best as I can to come into conversations with the, 
um, with the mindset that it is possible that some of the things that I have assumed to be true for a long time just aren't true. And, um, and you go in with a little sense, a little bit of humility that there's some things I need to learn. There's some stories I need to be told. And that just goes a long, long way, you know, and because there's a difference in that and trying to defend a position, um, you know, there's a difference in, you know, coming in and, and thinking of yourself as a scout versus a soldier, you know, a scout just wants to learn more and a soldier wants to, uh, wants to defend a position. Um, that just goes a really, really long way. I remember when I was in seminary, um, at Dallas seminary, when I went to the same school, um, we were in, I was in a spiritual formation group, which just kind of pulls, you know, these seminary guys together so that they're not just in a cubicle, you know, studying all the time, but, you know, ha- can have some good conversations. Um, and we were in a, this spiritual formation group for two years. And I think it was two years. Um, and one of the guys in my group, uh, was an African-American guy who was older than me and who had had a very successful career, uh, but felt, you know, he just, he wanted to be a preacher and that's, he felt God was doing this moving in his life and he had been volunteering at his church and all this. And he really wanted more education and had to leave a very lucrative career. He was a banker. He was a bank executive. And, um, and it was great to get to know him and all of that. But then hearing a little bit more of his story, it just, it just really changed my assumptions on what it means to be an American and what, you know, and he, that was the first time I had ever heard the phrase driving while black. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he drove a Mercedes, um, and he had been pulled over, yeah. um, because he was a black man driving a Mercedes with, and, and, and the police officer just wanted to, just wanted to see what was going on. Yeah. Is that and your car? Just ask a few questions, yeah. you know, whatever. This didn't feel quite right. Yeah. Um, he talked about, um, you know, in a, being in a department store and turning around and seeing the security guard, like the same security guard multiple times in different places. Mm-hmm. That has never happened to me. Mm-hmm. And him realizing that, you know, I probably make four times what that security mark, you know, or, or more of right. what that security guard makes. Um, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, like I just, I just never, and I'm glad I didn't try to like just defend all, you know, and say, well, you're just misunderstanding or whatever, but to like, you know, there's a, there's a whole set of experiences, um, and you, that, that I don't, that I haven't had to experience and that changes how you view the world. Yeah. It changed the way that man views the world. It changed the way, you know what I mean? It's like, um, and we just, we need to have those conversations with some humility, you know, to, uh, if we're going to move forward. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting along those same lines. I have a friend of mine who's a, um, a white friend mm-hmm. and, uh, he was talking to one of his black friends. And, um, uh, so they were at a meeting at church and the black man didn't have his wallet with him. Yeah. And so his wife kept calling this black man's wife kept calling her husband saying, Hey, I'm going to come up to the church and drop your wallet off to you. So that you have it with you. Yeah. And my friend who's white, he was like, dude, what do you, what's, what do you, what's the big deal? Like, you just drive home with us. Don't speed. It's like, yeah, it's not a big deal. Like, you know, because in his mind, driving around without a wallet didn't communicate there could be a problem or he could be mistreated or anything like right. that. And so he didn't understand why this friend of his who was black, that his wife had to leave the house, come all the way up to the church and give yeah. him his wallet. And then when he explained to him and said, hey, man, look, you know, I'm not taking any chances. If yeah. I get pulled over on the way home and I can't prove that this car is mine or I can't prove who I am, yeah, who knows what may happen to me? And it was at that moment that he got it. And he was like, you know what? Wow. Yeah. I don't even think about that. That's right. not something I even consider. And I think even in those stories, even among people who are listening right now, you know, my, my dad, you know, I grew up in a law enforcement household. Uh, my, my dad was in law enforcement his whole life. Um, I have a high view of law enforcement. Um, and there's great people uh, and the police force. And, 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 and so, you know, what I don't want anyone to hear us saying is that this is just what the police does or whatever, because most of the time they don't. And That's most right. of, you know, they're, they're great. They're, they're sacrificing. They're putting their body on the line. It's like so much. Absolutely. And it's so noble um, yes. to do. However, those, those narratives didn't, weren't birthed out of nothing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They did come from something. And whether right or wrong, they're there. Right. And whether right or wrong, um, those are the, some of the assumptions, those are some of the fears right. of, of our neighbors and of our friends and the people in our church. Um, 
And so just like when I'm having a, a you know conversation with my wife and she feels something, it doesn't really help for me to say, you shouldn't feel that way. Right. She does. That doesn't work very well. It doesn't work very well. <laughs> uh, she feels that way. Right. And so that's the beginning part. And so, okay, let's talk about that. Um, and I think that, I think what I sense in uh, a lot of the, at least in the white community is a lot of, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Right. Um, and that's just profoundly unhelpful, yeah. you know, to say, because those, those narratives, um, you know, at least, at least all the black friends that I know, it's like, they would rather not feel that way. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? Right, it's not absolutely. like they chose it, you know? Yeah. So, um, there's a, there's a lot of unraveling to do. Well, Alan, we need to stop. We've been talking long enough. Um, <laughs> But I just so appreciate I appreciate you taking the time to talk in our previous conversations and here for the podcast. Um, and I, I appreciate your your honesty and vulnerability and all of that and the work that you're doing and, and, and so many things. So blessings on you. Um, and I just really appreciate uh, taking the time to be here. Uh, it was a pleasure being here and love to come on again and continue to pray for the blessings over this podcast. So thanks so much for having me. All right. Thanks, man. Well, that concludes uh, this episode of the Page Two Podcast. If you would like to um, get to know Alan a little bit or follow his work, you can go to his YouTube channel, The Beat with Alan Parr. I'll put a link to that on our uh, website. Um, also, this this episode also concludes season two of the Page Two Podcast, and we are so grateful for all of the um, guests that have come in and spent some time uh, helping us have some really good conversations on important topics. Uh, we're going to take a break here for the holidays and we'll jump back in um, after the new year. Um, and then we're also super grateful for the Center for Church Renewal for just allowing us free reign and free use of their studio space so we can record these. We're so appreciative of them. And thank you for listening. We uh, would love to hear from you. If you have some ideas on other topics that you would like for us to cover, uh, please uh, leave a comment on our, uh, on our website. And, uh, and we would love to, we'd love to continue a conversation with you. So, uh, thanks for joining us for season two of the page two podcast. And that's all for now.